This podcast is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. What is creation? Did God create the world in six days and rest on the seventh? Does anyone really care? These questions and many more, including teaching tips and great resources, are presented in the Creation Science Podcast. My name is Felice Gerwitz, and it's my pleasure and honor to be your host. Some of these shows are from my Best of Creation Expos and other presentations I've completed throughout the years of teaching on this topic. I'm the owner of Media Angels, Inc., a publishing company that produces books, audios, and videos to help you and your family in your Christian walk. Check out my books and other podcasts at MediaAngels.com. To get the show notes for this broadcast, go to CreationSciencePodcast.com. And now, let's learn together. Hi, folks. Welcome back to our podcast, The Four Great Global Events of Genesis. This is your host, Patrick Nury. In today's podcast, we are going to talk about the fourth great global event of Genesis, the Tower of Babel and its implications for modern man. Before we begin, I wanted to remind you about my website, northwestrockandfossil.com. Northwest Treasures is all about understanding geology from a biblical perspective. I have over a hundred kits and many books all designed to help equip you in Genesis and biblical geology. So let's get started with our topic today, the four great global events of Genesis. This is part four, the Tower of Babel and its implications for modern man. Most people have a vague notion of the Tower of Babel story, and most people treat it as just a story with ethical overtones, whatever those are. Most people can't tell you where it is located in the Bible or where it fits within a Genesis view of history. Although there is not a precise record of when this event took place or a lot of detail, we can get a very good idea by following, you guessed it, the genealogies in Genesis. From these, we can figure out that the Tower of Babel event happened after the flood, but before Abraham. So how does that work? Well, the flood event took place at about the year 1656. That is 1,656 years after Adam was created which itself was the sixth day of creation, so year zero of the age of the earth. In other words, the earth was about 1,656 years old when the flood came on the earth. Following the genealogies and chronologies as given in Genesis through Shem, the son of Noah, Abraham was born in the 2008th year of creation, about 350 years after the flood. Now, the record of the Tower of Babel comes before Abraham was born, but after the flood. So that places the Tower of Babel squarely between the flood and Abraham. But we can get more specific than that. 
we can trace Abraham's genealogy backwards to a person named Peleg. Peleg was born in the year 1757 after the creation. That would have been around 100 years after the flood. So now we have an approximate date for the Tower of Babel. Let's take a look at the significance of Peleg and the days he lived in. First, let's look at a person named Nimrod who lived around the same time. Genesis chapter 10 records the genealogies of the sons of Noah after the flood. Ham, from shortly after the flood on, evidently did not share a good relationship with his father Noah. Ham's subsequent generations were all bitter enemies of Israel, who were descendants of Shem, and they tried to stop God's plans for them. And then in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 6, we read about a very famous and, in my opinion, a notorious character named Nimrod. He was the grandson of Ham, Noah's son. Let's go a little deeper into the ancestry of Nimrod. Babylon would become one of the centers of civilization and military power up through the time of Nebuchadnezzar, the infamous conqueror of the kingdom of Judah. In verse 8 of chapter 10, the record states that Cush, the grandson of Noah, became the father of Nimrod. But reading in verse 7, Cush had five sons, and Nimrod was not named as one of them. So who is this Nimrod? The Hebrew word means rebel, and the way it is constructed, it means the rebel. In other words, he was the main guy of the time who sought to replace or undo the righteous standards of the time. Could Nimrod simply be a derisive name for one of Cush's sons? At any rate, this guy with the awful name of the rebel seems to have had a reputation, maybe even as a mighty conqueror of people. We are told in this chapter that Nimrod built Babel or Babylon, among other cities. Nimrod also built Kala, which is today known as Nimrud. The Bible calls Nimrod a mighty hunter before the Lord in verse 9, or a mighty warrior or mighty one, as verse 8 indicates. The picture taking shape is that of a ruler bent on conquering, and God sees it. My personal opinion is that Noah's son Ham sowed the seeds of rebellion in his sons and his grandchildren. In context, Nimrod must have been the great rebel who would defy God. Other outside accounts credit Nimrod with the introduction of new religion that was totally contradictory to God's standards and person. Now back to Peleg. Peleg fits into the genealogy of Shem. Shem was in the line leading to Abraham and ultimately to Jesus also called the son of Abraham. Peleg and Nimrod 
could have known each other, according to the sequences of the genealogies. And Peleg, being in the line of Shem, could have been the one who was passing down the faith of his great-great-grandfather Shem. Remember that this was initiated through Seth, a son of Adam and ancestor of Shem. Now to the meaning of Peleg's name. It means division. In Genesis chapter 10 and verse 25, we are told, For in Peleg's days the earth was divided. I have heard two interpretations of this passage. One has to do with a geographical and geological interpretation. The earth was divided into its various plates, as in plate tectonics. I don't hold to this view for a number of reasons, the main one being it doesn't seem to fit the context of Genesis chapter 10. The view I hold to is related to the Tower of Babel and the meaning of Nimrod's name. A division took place at that time between the peoples of the earth. I don't think it is any coincidence that ever since the division between Cain and Abel, the people who have chosen to please God have been hated by the people who have rebelled. There has always been a division between the people of God and those who are not. Jesus himself stated in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 4, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then he went on to describe the division that would ensue between believers in him and those that were not. The tower, therefore, was, in my opinion, set up by Nimrod to cause division between the people of God and a new religion. Peleg might have been one of the key figures in this division and an advocate of obedience to God. Whether this was so or not is not known for sure, but Peleg's name means division, and it was during his life that the people of the earth were split up. God confused the one language and divided it into many languages, thus causing confusion and a scattering of people. It appears that from this point on, about a hundred years after the flood, the earth's people started to spread out. Perhaps they united around similar-sounding languages. Perhaps they united around common trades or skills. I also believe that it is at this point that many groups adopted different lifestyles according to perhaps skills that they possessed. Our modern concept of cavemen might have come from this point in time when those who lacked the engineering skills to build civilizations chose instead to dwell in caves. These people might even have isolated themselves, originating types of people groups. This is, I believe, where the Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon people most likely came from. So, what is the significance of this global event of Genesis for us today? It all goes back to how we view man, and consequently, how we view and interpret the fossil evidence of past civilizations.
Now, this brings up the question about the evolution of man as envisioned by Charles Darwin and the fossil skulls that have been found. It is at this very point where the Tower of Babel account is critical to understand. Because the biblical account of the division of mankind at the Tower of Babel is regarded as myth by modern science, then there has to be an alternative story to explain the division of languages and the differences among mankind. Evolution is the alternative story, and the fossils, once again, are lined up as the evidence. Evolution has always advocated for a developing or evolving human being out of Africa someplace, and has consequently misinterpreted the fossil skulls and other bones and tools that have been found. Just a sidebar here about fossils. Some might be bothered by the idea of fossils from the time of the Tower of Babel. Most likely, that is because of a mistaken notion that it takes a long time for things to fossilize. Not at all. It takes a right kind of petrification environment. Those are the primary chemical conditions for something to petrify. The mineral calcium carbonate, in the form of calcite and aragonite, plays an active part in bringing this about. Although not common, petrification in our own modern times does take place. Now, back to the fossil skulls. According to modern evolution, these skulls represent the various stages of evolution of man from an ape-like creature to modern man. Such terms as Paleolithic, meaning ancient stone, or Neolithic, meaning new stone, give these supposed evolutionary developments of man authenticity and credibility. If, however, the account of the Tower of Babel is true, then these various stone tools and even many of the skulls could be relics of the great division that took place during and shortly after this time as man attempted to recover from this great upheaval and uprooting in man's history. Some of these could also be relics of the flood, but this is the struggle in trying to sort out these various fossils and tools. The subtle differences among the various stone tools and skulls, therefore, would not be evidence of evolution, but of struggle in a hostile world of the time. Man would have been struggling for survival, not for evolutionary progress. This field of study, the study of man, has been termed anthropology. Paleoanthropology is the study of ancient man, and it is based in, as its counterpart paleontology is, the study of ancient fossils to establish the evolutionary history of animals and plants, including man. It was in the early days of the development of anthropology that a horrendous mistake was made. The measuring of fossil and modern skulls to determine intelligence. 
It was believed that those people who possessed larger brains were consequently more intelligent and therefore more advanced in their evolution. If you'd like to read some fascinating things about this period of time in our history, read Stephen Jay Gould's book, The Mismeasure of Man. Because of the mistaken idea of the evolutionary development of man, the skulls, the tools, and modern-day differences among mankind have been misinterpreted as evolutionary differences among races. It is not well known today that Darwin and others like him during his time thought that the pinnacle of the evolution of man was the white European and that black people represented inferior races. The famous dinosaur hunter E.D. Cope of the 1870s thoroughly believed this and advocated for the return of the former slaves to Africa. The famous Henry Fairfield Osborne of Nebraska man fame also was a devoted follower of this idea. He was a full-fledged eugenicist who advocated for the sterilization of what was thought at the time to be inferior people and races. Contrary to this, the Christian and Hebrew position has always been that God created from one man and woman the human race, one race, not many, and that this race was divided at the Tower of Babel into the various cultures and languages which were the forerunners of what we have today. An interesting side note here, a few years ago, a group of us were making a project for a state fair on the evolution of man. We constructed a mobile of the various skulls that had been found. As I was putting this together, I noticed that the skulls could all be divided into two basic groups, ape-like and human-like. Further, the groups divided precisely at the Australopithecines, meaning southern ape, fossil ape-like skulls, and Homo erectus and Homo sapiens, human-like skulls. I found out later that several people have noticed this. It is only a biased interpretation that gives subtle differences an evolutionary meaning. Since then, I have acquired a collection of casts of these skulls, and they can indeed be organized clearly into this division. Perhaps what we are really looking at are some of the varieties of apes and extinct apes, and on the other hand, different human beings, some of which could have been the results related to the incident at the Tower of Babel. This explanation certainly lends itself to the idea of the account of the Tower of Babel being more than simply a mythical story. It gives it credibility. Not much detail is given, for sure, but it does provide a historical framework in which to give some sense to the fossil evidence and various so-called cavemen that have been found. Well, that will conclude our topic and our mini-series for today. I hope you've benefited from these short podcasts on understanding the four great global events of Genesis. Don't forget to check out my website at northwestrockandfossil.com 
for more helpful resources on the subject. This has been your host, Patrick Nury. So long for now. Thanks so much for listening to the Creation Science Podcast. You can find the show notes at creationsciencepodcast.com. And as always, reach out to me, Felice Gerwitz at felice at mediaangels.com. Take care, God bless, and I hope you enjoy teaching your children and learning about the beautiful world that God created. Please share this broadcast with a friend and thanks so much.